This is Sending Signals, a show about music and creativity. I'm your host, Matt Royal. Welcome to the show. Our guests this week, Stevie Van Zandt, aka Little Steven, and Canadian actor Fred Uwanek. As you can probably imagine, I was thrilled my next guest agreed to come on the show. I've spent many nights in stadiums over the past 20 years watching Bruce Springsteen and the E Street Band, and the sight of a bandanaed Stevie Van Zandt mugging at the crowd or sharing a mic with Bruce feels like a key ingredient of an E Street show. It was pretty fun and a bit surreal for me to be on a Zoom call with Stevie from his amazingly flamboyant looking kitchen in Greenwich Village. Stevie has relaunched his long dormant solo career over the past few years, producing the album Soulfire, where he recorded a load of songs he'd written for other artists and more recently writing a new batch of songs for his album Summer of Sorcery, which is about trying to mentally recreate this utopian summer of youth where you fall in love and music sounds phenomenal and joy and optimism prevail. For both albums and the touring around them, Stevie, under his Little Stephen moniker, put together a new incarnation of his band, The Disciples of Soul. It was an incredibly ambitious undertaking, with 15 people on stage, incorporating complex arrangements in various styles. They recorded their set at the Beacon Theatre for a live album, and I'd recommend checking out the versions of Little Steven's Party Mambo and the Southside Johnny track Love on the Wrong Side of Town from that recording. Stevie was fantastic company. He was so gracious. We really had fun, I think. We discussed putting together the Disciples of Soul Band, of course. Potential songwriting rivalry with Bruce. Whether the mythologized electric version of Nebraska really exists. It's a wild ride. Enjoy. Hello there. Hey. <laughs> We're live and in person here. Is is that your lounge? This is my kitchen. Is it? That's incredible. <laughs> <laughs> it's just a kitchen it's so you yeah mo- most of my stuff is me how are you man yeah maureen my wife uh good man how you doing yeah i'm okay thank you are you sort of in new york state is that where you live nowadays i live in uh greenwich village in manhattan right okay what's well, so like near cafe war that kind of part of the world very close very close surprisingly close yeah which is uh which is where i used to go when i was a kid you know i've heard you talked about it before and um because i've only been to new york once we went a couple of years ago and sort of did some of the east coast stuff and yeah it was so cool sort of walking past and seeing it still there you know it looks so cool still. I mean, it, it, believe me it's one of the few things that is still there you know it's a shame uh the way things disappear that that shouldn't you know yeah are you kind of in sort of limbo a bit of a moment with things sort of almost opening up but not quite there um 
Yeah, well, we're a little bit past limbo, actually. We're, we're, we're actually, we are opening up. There's been a couple of concerts and, uh, you know, um, they may be limiting the audience a bit. I'm, I'm not sure, but um, but mostly everything's open. Yeah. Uh, you know, we, we, um, we've done remarkably well considering how we started, you know. Um, so we're, we're, we're in pretty good shape. You guys are open again also, aren't you? We're getting there, yeah. You can go to a restaurant and to the cinema and things. We're still under some restrictions at the moment. But the vaccine program's running really quickly. So so listen, Disciples of Soul, <laughs> when, you, when you put together a band like that, like on, on the surface, if you're, if you're an E Street fan, you can see like some similarities, especially if you saw like the Wrecking Ball tour which I did sort of eight times, you know, and you've got, you've almost got that little orchestra kind of vibe, you know, there's backing singers, there's horn players, there's percussion, there's guitar, there's sort of, there's sort of everything. But I wonder like, what, what are you taking from the E Street Band and what do you want to do differently when you set up a project like this? Um, frankly, I take nothing from the E Street Band. Um, I um, I started off my solo career with a big band with you know eleven pieces, uh, five horns, which I I started using in Southside Johnny and Asbury Jukes when we formed that band in 1974. Yeah. Um, so we so we we created this rock meets soul thing in the Jukes, and I carried it into my the beginning of my solo records, uh, my first Men Without Women. Uh, I had the five horns again, and then I went off and did different things. All five of my solo albums of the '80s were very different musically because each theme of the record was different, and uh, and the music was really just a soundtrack to uh, that particular uh, film, you know, that particular adventure. So when I went back uh, and, and kind of re- revisited my my life's work, which I kind of had abandoned for 30 years uh, in 2016. I said, you know, I'm, I'm hearing things uh, big again, as I did uh, in the beginning of my career. Uh, but this time, I, um, I want to add some harmony because I had I had just uh, rec- uh, produced Darlene Love's uh, solo album, yeah. um, introducing Darlene Love. And she had these three fantastic background singers. So I got it for the first time in my life. I got into arranging harmony, you know, along with the, the horns and the strings. You know, now there was a third element, the, the, you know, the harmony arrangements. And to make those three things, you know, uh, interact together without, you know, without stepping on each other and complementing each other was just the most fun. So I decided, you know, I really fell in love with harmony again and um, and decided to you know, add add that harmony element to my already big band thing. Yeah, and uh, and so we end up with a fourteen-piece band. Yeah, yeah. It's weird that the sort of rock meets soul thing. I feel like early E Street Band kind of had that more. Like I feel like you see footage of you in '75, and and I guess even before that, having like David and Clarence in the band. You know this this multiracial thing, oh. and I feel like you could draw a clearer line to kind of the rock meets soul <laughs> kind of roots in those early oh, days. Yeah. Oh no, yeah. No, if you if you go back early enough, I mean, yeah, me and Bruce grew up um, with exactly the same influences, uh, you know, and and we, you know, when you go back and look at it, it it's it's actually fascinating because we both were um, 
mostly influenced by the what we call the British invasion of 64. Yeah. You know, but when, but when you go back and, 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 and that, that for me was everything, you know, I had no interest in show business until then. I really have no interest in, in solo artists, um, even even now, you know, uh, uh, it was the band that attracted, you know, my my, you know, my interest. But if you look, if you go back and you, and you look at those old rock and roll TV shows and and, you know, we were fortunate enough in America, we had we must have had six or seven rock and roll TV shows on every week, you know, and I know you, you had, you know, you had Ready, Steady, Go and, you know, and a few others. Um, but if you look back at those old shows, you know, the Rolling Stones would come on and then Marvin Gaye comes on, mm. you know, the, the Kinks will come on uh, and then Curtis Mayfield comes on. So, I mean, that mixture of rock and soul was very much uh, integrated right from the beginning, uh, which was interesting when you go back and look at, and look at those shows. Um, so we were getting that input constantly, um, both rock and on the, on the rock and soul side. And by the time I started the Southside Journey Yadbury Jukes, which was, you know, 73, 74, um, you know, the Renaissance was kind of over and we had, we had gone into the fragmentation of the 70s, uh, which I, I talk about in more detail. I, I just wrote a book, which will be coming out end of September. And we'll, we'll talk again, you know, when the book comes out. But 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 um, but I, I go into great detail about how how we went from a monoculture in the 60s or a different trend every year to a f complete explosion and fragmentation in the 70s. But growing up when I did, you still felt you had to have a, an identity, you know, a very, a very specific identity as, as, as everybody did in the 60s. It was a requirement, you know. Um, and, and so we um, found that rock meets soul thing would be our identity. You know, we had the horns and, and, and the rock and roll guitar, which was an unusual combination still. Yeah. So, so uh, you know, so that's you know, that's where that's where it all started. You know, I feel like this is the sort of monoculture thing is a real rabbit hole. We could we could fall down. So I'm like conscious of that. But like, I, I think it's interesting now when you get to 21st century and now that there is thousands of radio shows and you know podcasts and you know anyone can make an album and release it and you, you know it seems to me like there there was more of a monoculture when I was a kid even. And now there is, there is nothing. But I mean, it's kind of good in some ways because if I think it forces you to find the things that you like, and there's less tribalism than there used to be. And if if you want to like Genesis and Joy Division, that's fine. Like no one's going to beat you up because <laughs> you're like you like so because my my taste my taste is broad. You know, I, I like prog stuff, and I'm a huge E Street fan, and I like electronic music, and I like the zombies, and I like you know. So I'm I'm all over the place, and so I like the eclecticism being uh, okay. You know. Yeah, yeah. I, I think I think you probably had that a bit stronger than than we did. I think. Uh, we we had some of it, you know. We we had the magazines, you know, the Beatles versus the Dave Clark Five, you know. Uh, <laughs> or the, you know the, <laughs> that sounds quite good. <laughs> <doesn't it? laughs> <laughs> you know, um, uh, but but um, yeah yeah we had a, we had a, we had a little bit of that, but but um, we had a wonderful a wonderful um, promoter uh, who was really a show producer named Bill Graham who elevated the entire live rock scene uh, with, a, with a, a place called Fillmore East. Yeah. Um, 
which was like a you know a theater uh, uh, down in the Lower East Side here in Manhattan, just a few blocks from my house. Um, and he would and he would intentionally um, combine things. You know, he'd have you know uh, whatever Miles Davis, you know, uh, and the Who, yeah. and uh, you know Buddy Guy on the same show. Yeah, for you know, bills. He, yeah. He, he, you know, you know, yeah. If you look, if you look it up, it's amazing to to see it. Uh, the three, the, the, you know, mostly the time three acts. I think every night, and were quite diverse. And 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 he did that intentionally to to broaden people's you know um, awareness and consciousness. And uh, you know, and 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 most of us were so stoned, you know, at the time that we were kind of you know, pretty open-minded about things, you know? I mean, that's one thing that drugs did for you back then. You know, they kind of opened your mind. And uh, we did, so we didn't have a, a whole lot of, um, you know, you have to like this or you have to like to that. To be clear, I'm not that old. I was born in 83. So I guess for me, the tribalism was sort of blur versus Oasis in the, in the 90s or, right. or of a Brit, Britpop thing versus you into dance or you into hip-hop or you into... Rip pop. There, there was sort of there was those kinds of divisions, but it just seems to me like there was this thing in the seventies that you know punk and new wave did away with prog, and it's like well, why can't you like both? Why can't they both exist? They both, <laughs> they both have worth and, and merit, and I, I've never understood that kind of one thing having to brush away something else that confuses me. Well, I, I think I think what happens is um, you know the adversarial sort of uh, attitude. Um, sometimes helps one's identity. Uh, you know, it, it, it's something. It's a part of one's identity that you can hold on to, and and um, it's sort of the, the lazy way to have an identity. You know, I mean, the the punks were kind of doing it. You know, they were kind of putting down, you know, putting down everybody that came before them. And then, of course, they were completely imitating everybody who came before them. You know, the Sonics uh, or whatever. Yeah. You, you, yeah, I mean, it was, you know, the Stooges, yeah. You know, they're, they're putting putting down fashion, you know, and then punk was a complete fashion statement, you know. Uh, so, you know, I mean, it was it was a bit silly. And, and, and you know, I mean, the, the, the Sex Pistols were covering, you know, uh, the monkeys and, you know, covering the who and, you know, I mean, you know, so, but, but, it, but it was sort of like us against them, you know, sometimes generational, you know, it's an easy way to sort of establish an identity by who you don't like, you know, yeah. who, who's the enemy, you know, it's all a bit silly in the end, you know, it's all, uh, it's all a bit of show business actually, uh, you know, which, you know, I, I guess does help in some ways that people become tribal and, and um, maybe that helps somebody sell records. But now, since no one sells records anymore, you know, things have, things have calmed down, I think, quite a bit. <laughs> um, with, yeah. with um, like, Summer of Sorcery, which has got some great stuff on there, man. And it's did it surprise you that you were still capable of writing a record like that? And uh, although you had a phenomenal band behind you, being responsible for it, did you surprise yourself? Yeah, 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 I did. I, I really, um, I had no intention of coming back into the business. Uh, you know, it was, it was a complete accident. Um, a, a London promoter named Leo Green, you know, says, you know, what are you doing? Uh, you know, and, and I said, well, you know, me and my wife come back to London for her birthday every year. And, and, and he says, well, that's, that's, that's the week of my blues festival. 
So why don't you throw a band together and play it, you know? And, and I say, well, I haven't fronted a band in 30 years, uh, but it sounded like fun, you know? So I, I, I did that and it was so much fun that it turned into the Soul Fire album, which was easy because it was songs I've written for other people. Yeah. And then, and then it turned into a Soul Fire tour. And then on that tour, suddenly ideas started coming to me. And, uh, and I said, wow, am I really going to write a new album? <laughs> and, I, and, I, and, I, and I did. And it was, a, it was a, a, a biggest surprise, it was a biggest surprise to me as it was to anybody. It was really a gift. I think a gift from that band that stayed with me for three years. You know, yeah. um, I need that solid foundation to work from, you know. You know what you're writing for then as well, don't you? You have a framework that you can write right. for and you can imagine if I do, if I write this, I can do this and you can see the steps ahead. Exactly right. Exactly right. And you know what? It was the first time and I was the first time I ever did two albums in a row with the same band. You know, yeah. so I, I, I always wondered, you know, how would I evolve if I did it the way everybody else does, which is the same band, you know, record after record. And you sort of evolve in your own way. Uh, but, you know, instead of doing what I did, which was a complete change from album to album in terms of genre and theme and everything else and, and configuration. Uh, so this was the first time I ever did two records in a row. So I was really um really quite excited to hear what I would come up with, you know, uh, and, and uh, very happy, very, very happy with the Summer Sorcery album. And then it turned into, you know, and then we, we were doing the Soulfire tour and it was so well received. Everybody thought, well, you know, you're never going to beat that. And I thought to myself, I don't know if I can beat that. And then the Summer Sorcery show actually, I think, did beat it. It was actually, um, in a way, more sophisticated, more evolved, because the band had been together for for a few years by then, and uh, had a new album to uh, integrate into an hour, into a show, you know, and I did it like a Broadway show, you know, uh, where, where every song had a purpose, and and you know, it's the same show every night pretty much, and it just turned out to be it turned out to be a, a miracle, to be honest. I mean, I, I really I was very very surprised by it, you know. I showed my wife the Party Mambo video. And I, I didn't know I, ne I didn't know I needed a song in my life called Party Mambo, but it turns out I do. And I, show, <laughs> I, show, I showed her the video and she thought it was amazing. But her question was like, how does he afford this? Which is actually an astute question because you, you were sort of touring theatres and it's a huge band. And it's one yeah. thing going to, it's one thing going to the E Street Band, you're playing stadiums and you know you kind of understand how that gets put together but a show that size for the venues you were playing i i, I mean i'm guessing you you're making some money on it but it can't be you know you weren't doing it for the money were you you know no no, no don't, don't don't try this at home kid <laughs> um uh, you know speaking of miraculous yeah it was it was a bit miraculous that we were able to pay for it i mean uh, we had some sponsors at first, and then, uh, well, we had sponsors all, all every step of the way, but it, but it, you know, it, it cost millions, uh, and uh, you know, I found it. I found a way to do it. I mean, it's part of, um, you know, one's willpower. Occasionally, you know, you, you rise up, and, uh, and I, I really felt it was important to do it. Uh, it was important for me just to have that reconnection to my own work and. and uh, bring it alive again and, and, and bring it around to some people who, whoever came to the shows and the, the show 
that I was an artist. You know, people, a lot of people never knew, even knew I was an artist. Uh, you know, they just maybe tuned in during Sopranos or whatever. Um, so it was really important to me. And, and we and we were very, very successful. We, we, we ended up um, doing it as a, as a way of uh, signing up teachers uh, for my for my uh, music history curriculum, teach rock. Um, which is um, yeah teachrock.org, and um, we ended up you know sign you know we had, we had a we had a uh, a seminar in between the sound check and the show. We put aside 500 tickets every show for teachers for free, and uh, we ended up signing up 30,000 teachers. You know uh, who, who uh, when now it's up to 40 or 45,000 uh, who are using the curriculum. You know all, all for free, of course. And um, it was a good way of connecting with the teachers that way because we 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 couldn't figure out you know we built this curriculum over 15 years, you know we're uh, very very proud of it, and um, we said okay we're here and, and and you know there was a, a deafening silence you know uh, we we couldn't figure out a way to connect so we said let's let's connect it to the tour because the Soul Fire tour in particular was sort of like my curriculum, you know, a, a, a traveling museum. I mean, um, it really did go back and show the entire history of rock and roll, uh, all the way back to doo-wop on that tour, you know, uh, from doo-wop on. Um, you know, so it really, it really was sort of like a, a live uh, museum, you know, coming coming to life and traveling around. And, and uh, it really made sense. The the, um, the chairman of the board of the foundation said, you know, let's let's, Let's support the tour, and 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 um, and this would be a good way to, to get teachers uh, interested, and that's exactly what happened. So, you know, but in the end, um, you know, uh, to be honest, uh, it, you know, it may never happen again. I mean, it's it was extremely expensive, and um, you know, I'm sure I'm the only one. You know, my little bit of you know pride that I hang on to is. I'm sure I'm the only one in the business who's done, you know, nine albums and six world tours without one single hit. You know? <laughs> I think that's a source of pride. You know? I mean, There's real value to doing things, creating art because you want to. You're lucky because at least you have an audience even that, that, that shows up. You know, I mean, I'm in a position, I put, I put out albums yeah. that you know no one hears basically and you know yeah, I, well i hustle i hustle a podcast from my rubbish apartment in westcliff whilst you know i was working as a cleaner last year i don't get paid for this you know and it's just because i can't i can't help myself but do it you know and so yeah i think having yeah. having a few thousand people a night show up just is still something to be grateful for you know no absolutely right you know i mean but i mean the truth is you know my life is, is really you know, the triumph of art over commerce, you know, yeah. I mean, I, I know we're supposed to be a combination of art and commerce, but I never got to the second part. So I'm sort of the triumph of art over commerce, you know, and that's just, you know, I, I've been lucky. I, I Believe me, I know how lucky I am because uh, uh, you're not alone, you know, in, in, in that sort of uh, lonely place of, of creating art that, that nobody that nobody sees or nobody hears, yeah. you know. So you know, I've been I've been lucky to have broke you know gotten gotten some attention, you know, through the acting or through through being in the East Street Band, and, and so people come out of curiosity, yeah. and and then we have to win them over. We, we we win them over song by song, you know. I mean, they've never heard probably any of the music, you know, maybe a few of the things, you know, but but really not much, 
and so we, we have to win them over song by song by song and we do you know and, and we did and and that's really quite satisfying in the end uh, you know to nobody ever leaves you know one of my shows they they're there right to the end and um and, and hearing um you know two hours and whatever it is two and a half hours two 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 twenty of songs that they had n no idea you know they, they had they had no um no relationship with before before that night so uh you know i, I feel good about that and, and uh and that helped me. That helped me in the end write the book because I, I tried writing the book ten years ago and, and couldn't figure out any kind of ending really. And so this this last three years gave me some closure that uh, uh, allowed me to write the book since we had the quarantine and was home for a year. You know, I, I, it actually I made use of it. A couple of friends have sent me questions they wanted to ask. My dear friend, Anthony Gladwell, who I remember he played me Atlantic City in his car when I was like a teenager, which really made like an impression on me. And I went to my first Springsteen show with him on the Rising Tour. And he, he wanted to know if it was difficult for you, coming from the same background as Bruce, both being songwriters, and suddenly your mate, <laughs> like, you know, just starts writing incredible songs and having just this unbelievable success was it difficult for you did you have to adjust to it or were you just pleased for him yeah i i don't um i'm a bit odd that way i don't really have that competitive thing no. um i really i really you know i i know oscar wilde felt differently about it but uh, I really, I'm really happy for my friends when they succeed. Uh, and in this case, I ended up, you know, contributing, you know, yeah. to the success. Um, you know, I, I ended up, you know, producing uh, a couple, you know, co-producing co The River and Born in the USA. So, so you know, and I, and I was very involved with the arrangements and a lot of the songs. And um, so, you know, I was contributing to it. I mean, he was a year ahead of me, you know, he was a year older and... Uh, and he was always like a big brother, really. So, um, you know, I was I was uh, uh, always rooting for him to succeed, and uh, and I was there when it, it turned from this difficult moment where you know his first two records did nothing, and the third record was going to struggle, and uh, I joined right at that moment when it was still a struggle and hadn't quite broken through. And we didn't really break through till the fifth album, till the one I co-produced, The River. You know, so so I was there for um, whatever that is, five years before we broke through, in addition to the previous 10 years of being friends, you know. Yeah. So um, it was just it was just thrilling that the first to hear him on the radio and uh, and to hear us on the radio and to and to finally break through and with, with our hit single, that first hit single. Hungry Heart in 1980, 81. And uh, suddenly we went from theaters to arenas. And uh, that's quite a thrilling moment. So I I, um, I very much shared in the success, uh, you know, and, and uh, but of course I was very happy for him. And, and, he, and he all of a sudden did start writing amazing songs. I mean, the songs, you know, I mean, they're all great, you know, but but it, it did take a leap on Born to Run, and then a, tur a turn to the left on Darkness on the Edge of Town, and then all of a sudden the spigot was open, and he went from writing eight or ten songs for an album to fifty or sixty. Yeah, 
you know, and they were, and they were all good songs, as, as people have heard now that they've a lot of them have been released. Yeah, it's it's amazing. He he could have put out an album a year, you know, and they would have been great, you know. Yeah. And um, the seventies, I think sometimes it's a missed opportunity, and you hear what the band sounded like live, particularly in seventy five, and you compare how flat the studio albums sound. Even Born to Run as an album in places, Tenth Avenue Freeze Out, compared to like how it sounds mm. on stage. And you think if you could have, if they could have captured the live band more on record in the seventies, like those albums could have been even better. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree with you, and I, that's why I became one of the producers because I wasn't, <laughs> I wasn't happy with the sound uh, at all, you know. And I talk about that in, in the book. Um, you know, I mean, Darkness on the Edge of Town in particular had you know, some of his greatest songs. And I, I, you know, I hated the way that thing sounded. Um, I, I tried to talk him into remixing it uh, when we, when we, re you know, when they did the re-release with the uh, with the added bonus tracks. And he said, you know, well, what are you crazy? I mean, the people have been listening this to this thing for you know 20, 30 years. <laughs> We're going to change the mix. <laughs> you did the Paramount thing though, where you played it in full without an audience, and that is incredible. That is my favorite version of that album. That Paramount theater performance That's where you right. yeah, just, yeah. oh it's, go back to it man it sounds amazing <laughs> yeah i forgot about that yeah yeah believe me when you when you start off you know you, you think it's only one craft you have to learn you know which is your guitar you know um, but it turns out to be five crafts uh, and the fifth craft uh, which again i talk about in the book in great detail but the the, the fifth craft the final craft is is recording you know and it took us uh, it took us five albums to figure it out, you know, and uh, you know, and I was experimenting on the jukes, the, the three jukes albums I, I produced. I was trying something different. If you if you listen to those three jukes albums, they all sound a bit different from each other because I was experimenting, learning the craft of producing, and then I used I used everything I'd learned with the jukes on on the on the river, and finally it came together, and we um, were able to capture that live thing. On, on an album look i've got a question which i know is will be irritating but i've just i just want to i, I want to hear it from you did you record the nebraska songs with the e street band like is there an electric nebraska in existence because it's one of these fan myth things and i just i, mm. I just want to ask does it exist i i think there's there's probably some of it you know i, I gotta be honest with you i don't remember right um but i, I think i think there probably was some of it because um, again, this is something I go into great detail in, in, in the book, but, 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 um, Nebraska was done as demos. Yeah. And, 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 and I was frankly the only one who thought it was an album. So, so for a while there, um, for a good, I don't know, a few weeks at least, um, we probably were, were, were trying out those songs, um, you yeah. know, uh, with the band, you know, until until everybody realized what I had realized, which is this Nebraska thing meant to be a demo was actually an extraordinary album, um, and 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 more, all the more extraordinary because it wasn't intended to come out, you know, uh, you know, you're never going to get a more intimate record than that, you know, and and I, it just blew my mind when he played it for me, he played it for me as as the new demos. And um, I just was like, I was just completely struck by it. It was like, this is amazing. You know, he's becoming these characters, which he hadn't really done up until that time. You know, um, 
you know, in, in truth, every singer is an actor, you know, yeah. uh, every, every singer is acting out, you know, the song. But in this case, he really was going to playing different characters entirely and, you know, serial killers and, you know, murderers and, <laughs> and you know, thieves and, you know, and all of these fascinating, you know, characters in, in, on this thing. And uh, I thought it was amazing. So, so uh, I got to believe since there was a few weeks in between doing the Nebraska demos and, and, and realizing it was, in fact, its own album, I got to believe there was a, at least a few weeks of, of recording some of those things. So, um, you know, they'll probably come out eventually. You know. uh, my friend Paul Langley sent me a question. We sent me a few questions. One was about production. And he said, when you approach being a producer for other artists, does being a performer help or is it a completely different skill set? And I guess, like, I want to mention the Ronnie Spector single, which I really uh, love, which you did, because... Uh, I mean, I, I love, I love Billy's, like, I love that Billy Joel song anyway. And to hear like the E Street Band do it and Ronnie sing it, it's fantastic. But of course, you know, you, you produced yeah. that. And so does being an artist yourself influence how you produce? Well, um, there's not, there's not too many of us uh, who are both artists and producers um, because it, it's two different, uh, it's two different attitudes and, and two different, um, sort of consciousness. Uh, it, it's a, it's, it's two different identities, you know, and um, it's a bit schizophrenic. So you, you know, it requires a, a, a sort of a schizophrenic mind, which I have. You know, I'm, I'm, I, I'm, I'm many different characters actually, depending on what's appropriate at, this, at their time. <laughs> um, but but all all the, all the crafts help when you're a producer. You know, it, it helped that I that I that I'm a writer that I'm a singer, that I'm an arranger, especially, you know, it helps that I'm a guitar player. It helps that I have a very, very strong sense of what the drums should be doing. So, so you bring all those, all, all those, those crafts to, to the game, um, which helps, you know, the more, you know, the, the better you're going to be able to help the artist. But in the end, you know, the artist, uh, it's, it's, it's gotta be, well, it's, there's a few different types of production, you know, sometimes, if the artist has a vision, a very clear vision, then then you're you're helping him realize that vision. Um, if they don't have a clear vision, you're going to help them find that vision. And sometimes an artist is just a singer. You know, they don't write. They don't particularly have a, you know um, a point of view necessarily. Um, and then and then the producer becomes the artist. You know, to some extent. So so it depends on what's appropriate at the time. You know, um, but but any 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 craft that you have, uh, you, you bring you bring you bring to the table, and it's helpful. Yeah, it's the most nondescript job title ever, isn't it? There's no there's no parameters really for what a producer is, right. and it, the, the, your definition of it varies depending on like which world you're in. It's it's fascinating. Yeah, you're you're, you're responsible for the record is the, is the bottom line. You're like the director of a movie. You know, you're you're responsible. So in the end, you know, uh, you know, you it's it, it's your it's your it's your it's your responsibility. Yeah. Like we mentioned earlier about you surprising yourself with Summer of Sorcery. When do you think you've most surprised yourself in your life, either in a in a good way or a or even a, a bad way? Like when when have you most surprised yourself? <laughs> that might be an unfair question. I'm gonna I'm gonna throw it out there. <laughs> <laughs> we've, been, we've been through this journey together now. I can ask. I can ask a cheeky question. <laughs> There's a lot of bad surprises, you know. I think 
Yeah, the, the book is filled with bad surprises. Um, <laughs> but uh, good surprise. I mean, I, I guess looking back on it now, um, I think the Sun City project was a bit of a miracle that we pulled that off. Uh, we couldn't, you couldn't do it now. You know, you couldn't do it now. Looking back on it now, I mean, I don't know how I pulled it off, really. Um, I didn't really have the celebrity to pull it off. I've never, I've never had the celebrity to pull anything off. Um, but there was a lot of willpower and, and uh, my friends who did have the celebrity, you know, um, really um, joined together for this righteous cause. And, uh, you know, we pulled off, we pulled off a miracle, but it took a lot of, a lot of people and, and you know, England was very strong already with Jerry Zammers and the specials, uh, Free Nelson Mandela and uh, Gil Scott Heron had Johannesburg and Peter Gabriel had Biko. So Sun City was like the fourth song uh, that was uh, about the subject. And we really, really were able to uh, raise the consciousness to uh, to uh, actually uh, accomplish something. So, that you know, I, I think that looking back on it now, it's a bit of a, it's a nice, it's a nice thing to remember, you know. So I don't know how much you can tell me if you can tell me. Um, East Street Twenty Two. Chance? Yeah, we don't know yet. No, 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 nothing, nothing definite yet. Um, you know, there's some complications that remain with this virus, um, especially in our own country. Yeah. Um, you know, where we have a third of our country uh, refusing to take the vaccination, okay? You know, uh, so, so um, that is going to complicate things forever because by not taking the vaccine, you keep it, you keep the virus alive. The problem in, in parts of Europe and, and the rest of the world is, is, is not having enough uh, vaccine to go around mm. for people who desperately want it. I, I, think, I think the tour is going to depend on that. I mean, I think we all, we all would love to tour. Uh, especially since we've made a terrific album uh, right before the quarantine. It's weird that, like, not having a tour, it feels like the album almost hasn't stayed alive in the same way that Wrecking Ball did or The Rising. And I, I, I'm, oh. a, I'm a big fan, and I, I kind of almost forget that it exists. And today I went out for a walk along the seafront, and I listened to um, Ghosts, and I, I was, like, imagining being in a, you know, East Street crowd again, you know, and it was just, I felt... I felt pretty emotional about it because it just, yeah, like hit me how how that's going to feel again because um, it's been so long since I've been in a crowd watching a band, you know, and it's going to be. A, I know. Yeah. But, I know. I know. Believe me, we all we all feel the same way about it, and um, yeah, we miss we miss that wonderful energy that comes from a, from an audience. But you know, uh, you know, I have a feeling that eventually we'll we'll, we'll get out there because. Um, I know, I know what you mean. It doesn't feel like you've released a record if you don't tour with it, you, you know, because we, we always have. And, um, and, and, and we're, we're particularly proud of this album uh, because we did it the old, the old way. We did it the way we did. We used to do the, you know, we did the river in Bourne, USA for the first time in however long that is. What is that? 30 years. Yeah. Um, we, we went back to the old way of, Bruce walking in with the acoustic guitar saying, here's the song. And then everybody, you know, uh, learning it and doing their own, doing their own parts, you know? Um, and we, and we did it very quickly. So, I, saw, I saw the film. I saw the film. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. Right. I keep forgetting there was a film. Was that the last, right. was that the last time you played in a room together? Um, 
No, no. In the middle of the pandemic, <laughs> we uh, did a Saturday Night Live, a TV show in America. Did. Of course you did. Yeah. Yeah. It was uh, quite scary, to be honest. Uh, it was quite frightening at the time. But um, Bruce really felt, um, you know, the, the, the people could use a little bit of a, a little bit of fun. Everybody was trapped in their homes and very, very uh, scared about everything. Uh, you know, so we wanted to provide a little bit of uh, a little bit of fun in the middle of it all. But uh, that was the last time uh, we were together. Thank you so much for doing this, man. My, my pleasure, my friend. My pleasure. If you're enjoying the show, please subscribe and leave a nice review if you can. You can also find me on social media. I'm on Twitter at Signals Podcast and on Instagram at Sending Signals Podcast. One of my favourite comedy TV shows is the Canadian sitcom Corner Gas, created by comedian Brent Butt. Corner Gas originally had a six-season run from 2004 to 2009. It's based around a gas station, or petrol station if you're from the UK like me, and the inhabitants of the fictional, out-of-the-way small town of Dog River in Saskatchewan. The show was incredibly successful in its native Canada, the final episode being watched by over 3 million people. Corner Gas came back for a movie in 2014, but even that wasn't the end of the story. Corner Gas Animated, which is exactly what it sounds like, reunited most of the core cast in 2018. Season 4 of Corner Gas Animated has recently launched, along with the news that sadly this would be the final season. One of the main characters of the show, Hank Yarbo, is played by Fred Iwanek, and I was delighted Fred was willing to chat with me for the show. Fred's character Hank is so important to the dynamic of the show. He's lovably frustrating, generally unemployed and somewhat childish. He hangs out of a gas station, frequently borrowing money he rarely pays back, but also being a kind of jack of all trades. When I spoke to Fred, the end of the show hadn't been announced yet, and it seems from our chat that Fred had no idea it was coming. Outside of Corner Gas, Fred has made guest appearances in shows like Monk and Dark Angel, as well as appearing in the Nickelodeon movie Swindle, alongside a young Ariana Grande. Fred was great company and stayed on after our interview to chat music. I feel like he really opened up as our conversation went on. I hope you enjoy it. Probably doing this wrong. (laughs) Well, I can hear, oh, because they're in the wrong part of my head. I don't just play stupid on TV. I'm thrilled you've got your cap on the wrong way as well. That's fantastic. Oh, just unintentional. Sorry. Just looks really authentic. Well, you know, I'm one of them method actors, right? I try to <laughs> try to be the character. <laughs> How are you, dude? How are you? It's nice to meet you. Likewise. Do you live in Vancouver or are you sort of outside? I'm in Vancouver proper. I'm in, in um uh, East Vancouver, which is um, very close to uh, Burnaby, like I'm kind of across the street from the next town over, which is uh, Burnaby, British Columbia. Is it right that that now you've got kind of half the cast on one side of Canada and the other half on on the other? Is that right? Yeah, yeah, that's pretty much right, right down the middle. Yeah, uh, Brent, Nancy, myself, Gabe. 
Yeah, we're in Vancouver, and then Tara Lauren. Oh no, Lauren's in Vancouver as well. He's in Squamish, which is about forty minutes out. And then everybody else, uh, Eric and Corinne and um, uh, Tara, are in uh, Toronto. How was the vaccine experience? <laughs> Traumatic. Was it? <laughs> I hate needles. Oh, I hate needles. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm, I don't know if I'm terrified of needles, but. Um, Oh, ever since, and it's stupid because as soon as it's done, like it, I literally didn't notice. I, I had this big production with the the fellow giving me the. I was like, look, you know, like I'm a big baby. This is probably going to be very. This is going to be very awkward and awful and everything. He's like, we're done. I'm like, oh, uh, what? Oh, that's reassuring. I've got yeah. mine. I've got mine tomorrow. So, are you terrified as well, or just sort of more like? Because on top of the terror, uh, fear of getting the shot. There's the unknown too, right? Like, you know, 15 years from now, I'll be like, ah, oh, we shouldn't have given you that. <laughs> you, know? you know, like that's that's what it is. It's just this like, and I've kind of come, I've come to accept it. It's like, ah, oh, you know, at some point in the future, they're gonna go, yeah. Yeah, it's a balance of risk, isn't it? Because, like, yeah, getting getting COVID is potentially, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's pretty dangerous you know, as well. So, yeah, I think it's like. I feel good about, I feel, I feel like I made the best decision. Like it, it's other, otherwise I'm going to be locked up in my house fearing COVID. I don't want any bit of that. Right. I don't want a piece of that COVID. I don't yeah. want to get that. Yeah. You see people still, I, I have a guy I know not super close with, but he's in the, in the industry. He's still dealing with long haul. He's still dealing. He got it like early, early on and he's still dealing with um, issues of it. So. Are you, you know. are you happy just for us to talk and for me to, edit this together into something oh absolutely yeah 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 yeah, yeah maybe uh you know this is a fear of mine with interviews is i'm always worried i'm gonna say something completely like, out of character completely horrible like just asinine and like what the hell what is it why did i say that just out of pure fear so i mean i don't think i don't normally i don't normally say but it's just one of my other stupid fears it's like oh god what if i what is if it I like yeah is that like an a an, like an obsessive compulsive thought do you think because that, that that's kind of yeah like i don't know i guess i guess there are degrees it depends how much you worry about it but like yeah worrying you're going to do something out of character i i think it's more of a fear i'll do something than it's my actual character and it's not the character <laughs> I, thought of. I have a question about acting in general i might be the wrong guy to ask i'm a terrible actor as, as an actor like you're you know often you're, you're reading the script so you've got lines given to you you've got the director's vision as well how do you go about inhabiting a role to feel like what you're doing is creative and that you are actually contributing something when so much is out of your hands i'm like fascinated mm. by because being an actor of course you consider it as being a creative thing but I'm also I'm curious as to when you're getting fed the lines and you've got a director to please and a producer to please and how, how do you feel creative when you're an actor? Well, just the whole. Well, that's a good question. I don't I don't know that I do. I guess I mean I see my I guess I'd say it this way I see my job as uh, to color what they somebody else has already created right like yeah. and you're gonna you're gonna obviously bring a different essence to it than they probably expected. But that when they cast you, that's what they, they wanted. Right. So, yeah. um, I, this is going to sound cheesy, but like, I, 
I, I think of it as like as an actor, you're you know, it sounds so cheesy when I say it. I'm not really, but your your bo- your body is an instrument, right? Yeah. And you want to be as open as possible and just let the words play you as opposed to you play the words. Um, so it's more of a, it's like an in the moment creativity. It's it's sort of like you're a vessel for somebody else's creation. Yeah. And 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 that's what I kind of see my job as. Um, so you know, I have my take on it and it's sort of my instinct of, of how it's, how it's supposed to be played, how I see the character. But at the end of the day, it's somebody else's gig, unless it's a show I've created, which I haven't had the luck to, to have yet. It's, it's somebody else's gig. So if the, I'll, I'll show them what I, I like. And then if the director or the showrunner or the creator is like, could you do it this way? I'm like, absolutely. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's their gig. So, um, I, I just sort of, I guess, doesn't sound very creative, does it? It seems very, <laughs> but that's how I see my job, you know, yeah. as an actor, unless, unless I've created the, the, uh, the property, then, you know, that's, that's what I'm, I'm hired to do. Have I just made you feel really bad about your entire life? No, I don't feel bad about it. I mean, that's how I, it's way less stressful. <laughs> like, I mean, there's. You know what I mean? It's like, hey, that sucked. Yeah, well, you know, that's what they gave me. Like, what am I going to do? You know, that's how he told me to do it. What do you want me? When you play a role for a long time, i.e. Hank, do you feel like you've been able to give input on that character? Do you, do you feel personally, you know, do you feel like you've pushed the direction of the character in any way? Or, yeah, you must feel a degree of ownership, though. Oh, for sure. I definitely feel like, and yeah, you know, you know, one of the best feelings as a writer, you know, after first season, one of the writers was like, you know, it's it's easier to 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 write now because you've got the image of yeah, they've got the images you... and the voice of the actors, right? To, yeah. Um, and so, uh, you know, I imagine there's some kind of influence on how the dialogue's written. Yeah. You know, after you know, here like, um, hey buddy, what's going on? It's quiet. Um, Oh, uh and sorry that's puck oh nice and it's, it's the whole zoom thing being home now right like you know you get interrupted by creatures um if especially okay for corner gas six seasons i think absolutely i've you, you have influence over the the character and it becomes more collaborative maybe yeah just puck in the back <laughs> so it's embarrassing so. did you have any reservations or concerns when you discovered you were essentially going to be playing an idiot? <laughs> no, 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 I, no, I, I, not at all. I, I like, uh, I like playing simpler characters. Um, I don't know if it's a reflection of myself, but I seem to have played a lot of them through the years. Um, I find them honest, you know, and I, I like that. Like I think uh, Hank for, to, to, from corner, you know, talking about corner gas, I think he's an incredibly honest character. Yeah. Um, you know, there's not much deceit in what he presents to the world. And I like that. I like I like it when you can read a person. You can definitely read Hank. There's no surprises. Have you ever worked out what how he actually pays his rent? That's the question I have. Yeah, I get I get asked that. I've never I've never worked it out. No, I think he's just sort of like that. 
he's living on, on this really cheap piece of land that was probably has probably been in the family for for a couple gener generations and he does the odd job just enough to kind of get by i think he does just enough to get by and it's usually he's like hey hey can you move this stuff for me uh, I'll give you 20 bucks. Yeah. All right. Yeah. I'm going to 20 bucks, you know? And then he goes, well, like, man, I'm ripping these people off. 20 bucks to move that. Whew. You know, like, I, I, I think that's, he's just sort of, yeah, it'll happen. I don't know. It's kind of hinted. He's sort of a mechanic. Like he's under the hood of a car on the opening credits. And... Yeah. he's Yeah. He does that sort of, you know, he's like the, I think he's the, uh, the handyman. Like, I don't know if they have in the UK, but there's always like, um, you know, plastered on a, a telephone pole or something, a little uh, pamphlet that says handyman, you know, all odd jobs, you know, and the, with their phone number. I think he's probably like that guy. So let me ask you this. In the transition to becoming, you're, you're now a voice actor. <laughs> you're playing the same part, yeah. but you've lost the you've lost the physicality of Hank and you're just Hank the voice. Was that a difficult adjustment? Have you had to... Yeah, what what's changed for you playing Hank now that you're just focused on voice quality and you've, you've lost the physicality? That must be really strange. Yeah, it is. Um, I actually just before we knew we were going to do the animated version of Corner Gas, I I started work on um, an animated show called Dino Trucks, and so I for about two years I I've been working, so I I. I I was learning on the job with the voice stuff. So, um, and it's, uh, I'm glad you brought this up because I really missed a lot of the stuff for me with Hank was like, was visual, like, you know, a look or uh, a reaction and that kind of stuff, which I don't have control over anymore, right? Like the animators sort of have a huge, you know, a pretty big portion of, of the performance of Hank in their hands. And I, I can't really do anything about it. And, I think they do a really good job. I think they've captured, I think they captured it pretty well, but I, I miss it. I mean, I do it in the room when I'm doing the, the voice. I kind of try to be like I was on, uh, on when we shot the regular series, but a, a, like a slightly amped up version, you know, like it, I got a, it's kind of without being too cartoony. It's, it was kind of a challenge at first think i've got the gist of it by now i don't know but um yeah you got to try to that that's the challenge for me is like camping it up a bit without being campy because yeah. if you if i did if i if, if i voiced the character uh just like i did in the regular show it it comes off quite dull and there's not much life to it if that yeah. makes any sense yeah because hanks he's that, he's that kind of he wants to just stand about and drink his coffee like and yeah. so to play that as an animated character is a really odd thing but so i've not seen loads of the animatics it's not very easy to, i don't think there's a legal way to watch it over here no i don't think there is but they've done from what i can tell they've done a great job and it looks it looks like the show it just it just looks like the show and there's only there's little there's a, there's a scene where um hank is crawling across the grass but they, they do this very exaggerated. He's kind of back, like almost like pivots right. up, really yeah. like in extra. That there's like little details like that that you know, obviously, it's sort of an it's an animated contrivance, you know, to like make Hank move in a particularly amusing way that he wouldn't physically you wouldn't physically be able to do in real life. But but generally, it's just 
it looks like the show and it's such a cool move i guess there's always the you know the cutaways and the imagination stuff that now you can they can go to town on that kind of stuff which is you know which makes total sense it just it looks like the show and i can imagine that if you get to know episodes i can imagine over time you could easily forget oh was that an animated plot or was that a you know because it it looks like the show that's great i i I hope that's the case for a lot of people i mean i i think it works i think it works as an animated show Uh, and we did a little to pitch it to the networks they did like a little um uh, sizzle reel kind of sizzle bit and after we recorded that and they showed it to us, I, I, I was on board. I was like, yeah, this, you know, it, it really works. And like you say, with the cutaways, they can, you know, there's, there's no, they never had anywhere near the budget to do the stuff for those uh, cutaways in the original show that they, they can do now, like the, the creativity they can, they can, yeah, like they could do, a Ma- they could do like a Mad Max parody. Yeah. Like, you know, that kind of thing. Cause you, yeah, you can just, you can just do it. You saw, you saw the Mad Max bit. Yeah, yeah, that was the sizzle reel. That bit was what they right. did for the sizzle. Yeah, I think it works really well. I'm happy to hear you say that. I love do. I mean, I've I've wanted to do voice for cartoon for so long. So, you know, for me, selfishly, it's like a, it, it's it's been fantastic. And um, I don't know if I could just do voice work. I, I'd do that. That's that would be all right by me. Um, I've heard Brent talk about this idea of there being a Canadian sense of humour or a Canadian type of comedy. And he refutes that idea because he thinks, well, you know, look at the different, look at the different comedy shows that are popular in Canada. And then they're not, they're not alike. And and I wondered how you felt about, do, do you think that there is a Canadian sense of humour? Um, I haven't put too much thought about it, but it's when people say that, well, somebody, when they talk, especially when they talk about corn gas, they go, "Oh yeah, it's, that's such Canadiana," and I'm like, "Okay," but I don't like. I'm like, "Yeah, you could kind of set it anywhere. Like, you could set Corner Gas in the Midwest of America, and yeah. it would be the same show. The references would be different. You know, there's. The, I guess. I guess the thing is, with Corner Gas specifically, like you know, a lot of the references in the original show were very Canadian like a lot of the guest stars were very I mean we have prime ministers and stuff and hockey players and you know Canadian gold medalists from the Olympics and stuff and um but as in terms of like I think comedy can be regional but I don't like to say that's Canadian comedy well comedy from Newfoundland is quite a bit different than comedy from the west coast I haven't put too much thought about it so I don't know what is Canadian people say that but I can't I couldn't tell you what makes Canadian humor Canadian humor I guess it's just Canadians telling jokes makes it Canadian humor I don't know do you see uh, uh, this is a this this maybe this is a helpful way to look at it then do you see a difference if you watch a British comedy show do you think oh that's so British yeah but that but that's yeah but that I do but you you guys sound different than us. <laughs> you know, it's weird. So it, here's the thing. Like, it's funny because when I watch, if, if I, this is a little off topic, but I was talking about this with a buddy of mine the other day. I can't watch. I was like, if, if there's some kind of film or series or something about uh, the Roman times, I go, if, if everybody doesn't have a British accent, I don't buy it. 
I was like, you know, they weren't British back in the day. It's like, I know, but when they're telling us, it's got to be British. Like, I'm sorry, you know, Julius Caesar has to be British. Like, he has to be. Otherwise, this is not authentic. To be clear, I don't have a strong opinion on Canadian comedy. I just, I just want to know. I know. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I think I'm the same as you. Like, I, like, if somebody says, oh, that's very Canadian, I'd be like, okay. But I, I don't know. I don't know what makes yeah. Canadian humor Canadian humor. Like, I don't know. You're right in the, um, I think watching it as, as a Brit, the the cameos are the things that fall flat in for me when I watch it. Because I'm like, yeah, yeah I, I've, I've got no idea who that is. Yeah, like, and there'll, there'll be this, like, wink, wink appearance of someone. It'll be like, no, I don't, I don't know who that is. <laughs> you know, which, yeah. But that's, but that's fine. You still un- you still understand how TV works and that to Canadians, this will be a recognisable person. And, you know, that's right. fine. And, and, yeah, and, like, I, I suppose for you, would it be, like, if it's an American show, because American, I don't know if American culture is permeated into your culture as much as it is. It's obviously here in Canada. We're inundated with it. Um, yeah. You have, you have, you probably are, are open to more references to an American show than you would be a Canadian show. Is that fair to say? Yeah. 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 So probably. And, yeah. And, and in Canada, we're like, if the same could be said for the, the British shows is generally we pretty much were pretty aware of most of the references. Like some go over our heads, like, oh, I didn't go. but for the majority it's like, yeah, we have enough knowledge of, of, of the UK to kind of get most of the references. Whereas here in Canada, you know, like, yeah, to be honest, Canada is just kind of like, yeah, okay. nobody really cares about Canada, but they don't not care about Canada. They're just kind of Canada's just kind of there doing their thing. And we're all aware of them, but yeah, not really. It's like, you know, hey, guys, remember us? Yeah, 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 you're doing well. Good job. Good job. You know, but nobody's really paying attention. I'm a big music fan. So it's interesting sort of bands like, say, Our Lady Peace that are like, oh, wow, in, like huge yeah. in Canada, but are like ridiculously obscure over here. Right. I like the fact that Corner Gas, you don't play up the like Canadian it, it being very cold thing, and it, it's always it's generally very sunny. The show is generally very sunny. Yeah. And, and it, it 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 looks yeah it, it looks sunny and and beautiful, and I, I'm sure this is a conscious thing on Rent's part. Because the sort of stereotypical, like, Canada being cold, yes, we know Canada is cold thing, like, must be really grating as well. So I, I yeah. like the fact that the show is so sunny and bright most of the time. The, and the weather, it just isn't really a factor in the storylines. Yeah, it's funny. We got uh, we did an episode um, during the Grey Cup. And the Grey Cup, for anybody listening, is Canada's version, the CFL, Canadian football league it's version of the super bowl and i believe it's older it's been around a lot longer but anyway uh and so we go to the super bowl we uh, sorry we go to the great cup and it's beautiful sunny nobody's wearing parkas or anything and it's like well great cups always held like in the dead of winter and anybody knows saskatchewan there's no way you're going to to the great cup and just like a, a a jersey like because it's like going to be minus 20 or or something that day right so we got grief over that um yeah it's it's uh for some reason we only see uh dog river during the summer yeah. the summer months yeah uh, which is okay by me because i have spent time in saskatchewan in the winter and it's not pleasant <laughs> it is not pleasant it's really annoying because it's just disappeared off amazon prime over here like in the past couple it has of, in the past couple of days it's just you can you can buy you can like pay like 
thirty pounds for the, each series or something. But it was on like the prime. Oh. It was on a prime service, and it's just been removed. And well, um, this is now we're gonna t- we're gonna talk, and somebody nobody's gonna be able to go watch it. I know. I'm really. I don't know what's happened. I'm hoping it's just. But maybe I only had a license for a year or something. I I don't know. Um, well, that's news to me too because I know Amazon has the rights for it. I still, I'm pretty sure they still have the rights for it in the states, but I don't know. It sucks. I just started season four, so I yeah, I'm a bit lost. Oh no. Yeah. Oh, it really gets going season five. <laughs> I saw the movie. I paid to see the movie the other day, but yeah, I've still got I've still got lots to discover. Oh yeah. no! Oh well, you should have watched the movie after the sixth season. It would have might have made more sense. Maybe I got yeah. <laughs> All right. Did you like Did you like the movie? I did. I thought you know the movie. I was I, I was going into the movie. I was worried about it. Yeah. Um, because my fear was like. People are just going to say, it's just a big, it's just a long episode. And, you know, it, it kind of is, I mean, it's corner gas. Like it can't, it's, but I, I thought structurally it was, it was a solid movie. Like, um, I think if somebody hadn't watched the season and watched that movie, I think they're still getting something out of it. I still think they can go, yeah, that was an enjoyable movie. Like, you know, we're not going to win any awards, but it was a good movie. You know, I paid five bucks for that. I think it's worth five bucks. I thought it ba- yeah, I thought it had a good balance between yeah, the stakes the stakes were higher, you know, and there was bigger drama to it, but it was still ostensibly corner gas yeah. and there was a lot of there was a lot of payoffs with the <laughs> you know, the, the rival town and the lacy joke at the end. There was a lot of little payoffs which you know, I think would have been very satisfying for to fans so i it was, it was pretty well judged and you know the opening scene was sort of hank's dream was was hilarious as well at that point we'd been away for a little while so it was fantastic to get back together um and being back in saskatchewan was awesome because we got the majority of the crew was you know the original crew so wow it was nice to kind of get to see everybody again and and regina regina became a second home and uh, it, it was it was just awesome to kind of get back and and it's funny because then when that movie was done that was supposed to be sort of like a farewell letter and then it's like apparently we just can't we just can't give it up we just keep coming back we're like cockroaches now we're doing the cartoon I wish I'd brought MASH back as an animated show MASH would be a good animated show yeah I'd watch I'd probably watch that I'd watch that yeah um what was it like working with Ariana Grande? <laughs> <laughs> um, well, she was she wasn't. Who would have thought, right? Like she, um, I just made you sound really good there. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Oh, you know, um, she she's just wonderful. She she was they, she was really young, and the whole that whole cast of kids were you know like I, yeah, I was like it was a it was a bit odd. Um, that was a great experience, actually. That was a lot of fun. Uh, it was really campy. I keep saying the word campy in this interview. I don't use normally use campy. Um, you know, in, in all honesty, they were great kids. Like I, when I got that gig, I thought, all right, this is going to be, you know, a bunch of really um, famous. Uh, was it Nickelodeon kids? They were Nickelodeon kids, right? And they all had their own shows and tons of followings. Like I think even at that stage, those kids had like millions of followers on whatever social media thing was they hit back then. 
Bebo. Um, MySpace. Probably, I don't know. And uh, they were great. They were, you know, they were all really, I mean, they, they were working actors, so they were always prepared. They didn't mess around too much. I mean, they were kids. They were having fun. Yeah. But they, yeah, all, all those kids, her, her particular, I was, I was impressed at how uh, professional they were. Yeah. It really struck me. So I'm not surprised that she's a her and 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 uh, I can't now I can't remember the other girl's name. They were singing on set all the time, and they they were both incredibly talented. So I'm not surprised that she's become the megastar she has today. What do you still want to achieve creatively? I I would love, and I don't necessarily need to be in front of the camera anymore. But I would love to create content. Uh, be a, uh, not necessarily a showrunner, but creative producer so, uh, on a show that I created. Yeah, I would love to see a show that I create um, find screens and have success. So that's that's my that's what's kind of driving me right now. I, I I'm sort of I'm not done with acting. I, I I still really like acting, but I only really like the time between action and cut, and then everything else I kind of I don't have time for, and I'm kind of grumpy and. Not grumpy, but I just I, I don't like doing all the other stuff. I don't like doing press. I don't like oh, auditions sorry. or what? <laughs> you don't do press and not you. No, I don't. I don't consider this press. <laughs> Me neither. This isn't press. When I say no, when I when I say press, I think like press junkets. Like when you're promoting a show and they're sending you wherever, and you got to do all the, you know, like yeah. it's different now. I I this stuff I love. Trust like, me, I'm, I'm not press. I'm. No, I know. I'm definitely not pressed. This, uh, yeah, I was just gonna say like now I was worried I offended you, but I don't consider that. I just consider this having a conversation. Yeah, I yeah, like yeah. this because like it, normally like you're promoting a show and you do the junket and you vote like everything's like okay here now okay you got to go here okay talk to this person okay now you gotta go talk to this person and it's like you're they're asking you questions but they're not really listening to you right yeah. so you give an answer and then they're kind of nodding their head. And then, and then they're on to the next question, which has nothing to do with anything you've said. You know what I mean? Like yeah, it's yeah. just checking the checking the boxes. Like we gotta let's just get in some bites. We're just getting bites. Come on, we just need some bites, right? Um, but mostly it's the getting the work as an actor. I, I I just I don't have the stomach for it. I don't like the grind. You know the endless auditions and the, you know. Um, do you feel disadvantaged being in Canada as opposed to if you'd moved to Los Angeles 25 years ago or something? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it worked for Ryan Reynolds. It might have worked for me, maybe. You know, Ryan Reynolds from the same town I'm I'm living in, and he seems to be doing it. Maybe I should try. I don't know. Yeah. yeah never, um, I don't know. I, well, yeah, or I could have just withered away and not got anything, right? Like if sometimes I think about it would have been nice if Corner Gas was an American show. You know, <laughs> I'm not going to lie. Financially, I would have been uh, on Easy Street, but um, it would have been a different show. I don't know. I mean, I, I have no idea what would have happened. I did go to the States after Corner Gas was done, uh, and I didn't ha I didn't have much luck, but I didn't stick around that long either. I didn't really gut it out. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Who knows, right? I don't know. It's, it works for some people, but it, I think it spits out more people than it then it um you know rewards so have you been writing have you been developing stuff yeah i have been and uh a good friend of mine and i are are actually plugging away on a on a an idea now that we hope to 
you know, find some interest in. Um, and I, I, yeah, over the years I've pittered and powdered, but I hadn't had much success. The only, the only thing I've ever written that um, ever got produced was, and I don't want to say the name of it because it, the people worked on it, and I don't want, but it, it turned out to be a big piece of poo. Um, and uh, they actually took it away from me and got somebody else to rewrite it. So I don't even know how, I don't know how that how to take that but um you know but i haven't really gone all out for it now just in the last year i've sort of made the determination that i'm really going to go for it so now i'm really putting in the effort so we'll see we'll see what we can make up yeah it's, it's amazing isn't it that as humans we can just create art just deciding to do something and if you've got the the patience and just do it you can make something that's that's amazing it is it is uh to take something that's in your brain and then create like share it with the world is it, it is especially nowadays with like you know you, with yours you know you can you can you can distribute it yourself you can create it and distribute it yourself you're not so reliant on other people to get it out yeah um yeah it is pretty now's it it's a good time to be a creator now. I think it's a little harder to to earn a living at it, but it's never been easier to create and share your 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 creations. So that's that's a trade-off, isn't it? Because because you can do it, it also means that everyone else can do it. Everyone else can do it. Yeah. So a couple of years yeah. ago, I thought you know I was really into podcasts, and I thought I'd like to do a podcast, and I've been a huge music nut since I was a kid, and I thought let's try it. And I started kind of reaching out to people and just started from scratch, pitching this podcast to people and trying to like work out who I needed to contact and PR people and just started it from from nothing. And like the first couple of episodes I had, Adam Duitz from Counting Crows was like on my first episode. Second episode I had Niels Lofgren from the E Street Band and Mike Rutherford from Genesis who are like childhood heroes. And it was just... And so I've been, I feel like an imposter because, I mean, I had David Crosby the other week and I've had Chris Hillman from a Birds. Well, that's, I, so I strolled through when you, when you reached out, I strolled through your episodes and I was like, well, why the heck does he want to talk to me? Like, you know. But that's the point. I just, I just want, I just talk, if I'm interested, then I'm up for it. So like, I love Corner Gas, so a chance to talk to you is like a, great it's like fantastic because it's like yeah i love i love the show and i'll be watching you on tv and now i get to have this conversation with you and put a piece of it's, it's like a bit high mind to call podcast art but like you know you're this is now in a tiny tiny way part of the corner gas story because it's an interview that you've done with someone about the show and i've put that out and so that's out in the world now and like i'm now I'm part of a corner gas story in a tiny, and that's that's fantastic. But considering the guests I've had, you wouldn't believe how hard it is to get listeners, you know. And oh I'm, yeah, and I don't have, you know, I was working well, basically, I was working as a cleaner last year, you know. So I'm like, <laughs> I'm like going out like hoovering apartment buildings, and then I come home <laughs> and I'm talking to someone from Genesis or something, and it's just it's it's surreal. It's pretty, that's that's awesome, you know. Um, it's funny because like I. So you talk about that and, and not to compare, but like, I lo- don't get me wrong. I love what I do, 
but it's more so I, I've become friends with I shouldn't say friends I've got to you know for me that I'm a huge hockey like if I could have chose what I would be doing my dream thing would be a, a goalie for the Vancouver Canucks yeah like that would be my that's my dream right it's not pretending on a show it's <laughs> being an NHL goaltender right like I literally kind of fell into the acting thing because I, I didn't know what else I could do I early on I realized I'm not going to be an NHL goaltender and I was like oh what the what the heck am I going to do <laughs> right? uh, but through different connections and stuff I got to be on the ice with some of my childhood heroes like ex-Canuck players yeah. like uh, Cliff Ronning and uh, Kirk McLean and you know uh, Dave Babich and Yurke Lume these guys that maybe a lot of your listeners don't know who I'm talking about, but these are like big yeah. heroes to me. I wanted to play with these guys and I got, I finally got to do it. Like I, so it's cool. Like you, you know, you would rather, you know, with the podcast and talking to people that you looked up to uh, growing up and stuff. I'm, I'm like that as well. But for me, it wasn't the, the creative, like being a creative person, uh, which I do like doing, don't get me wrong. I wanted to be the hockey. So I got to do that. Like be doing this job, pretending, gave me the opportunity to live a bit of that dream that I really had. If that makes yeah. any sense at all. Yeah. Yeah. I think you just, you have to, yeah, I guess with, with a podcast, it's, it, it's frustrating sometimes when, yeah, like I'm working as a cleaner and not earning very good money. And it's like, I can make a podcast and I can talk rock stars into coming on the show. And it feels unfair sometimes that, I can't earn something from doing that because well, I, I think the show, but then, but then it's like, at least I feel like the show is good and I'm talking to people that I'm interested in and my wife loves the show and my father-in-law loves the show and I've got listeners. It's just, yeah, it's, it's not, I'm not earning money from it, but you can't, if, if you define success by that external validation and money like would you do anything and yeah that's not well, yeah, that's not living yeah. is it that's not life so no i know if you're making like billions and billions of dollars doing something you absolutely despise i mean you know at some point is it worth it all i mean i don't know i i would rather just get by doing something that makes me apps like happy Oh, who am I kidding? I would love to have millions and millions of dollars in the bank, but you know, it would have to be pretty horrible for me not to be able to do it. But it, I don't know if you're doing something that pays the bills, that's okay. As long as you have something else in your life that makes you happy, I think that's success. Yeah. Are you happy? You know, so yeah, I'm very happy. I mean, there's things I would love to change. I would always like, I mean, I, I would like aspects of myself, you know, I'm always working on aspects of myself. I, like I say, right now I have a goal to to get something on screens that, that I help create, you know. Um, it's a goal of mine right now. But no, I'm, yeah, I'm generally happy. I'm, I'm very fortunate. I found a life partner that that I absolutely love. And we have a, a you know, some may call it a modest home, but I, I love where we, yeah, I'm happy. I got a great family. And yeah, there's a lot of things in my life that I'm, I'm ecstatic that I I'm very fortunate and happy about and there's other things too. I wish I could change and I work on the things I can 
hopefully change. I'll work on those and things I can. I just try not to think about too much. You said there are aspects of yourself you're working on. Like, are there things about yourself that you get particularly frustrated with? <clears throat> well, we've already talked for, for a bit. I don't know how much longer you want to talk. I've got lots of things that drive me nuts about myself. Um, yeah, there are, there are lots of aspects of my, not so much my personality, but I'm like, very socially awkward. Um, have anxieties that uh, get in the way. Yeah, that I, I'm constantly working on. Um, I um, this weird when I was younger, uh, things didn't bother me as much as they do now. But in a weird way, I'm easier going. I know that sounds counter, counter, counteractive, but yeah, like if somebody parks in front of my house, I just get so worked up about it. Yeah, you know, because there's a, they could park anywhere else. And it's, you know, things. <laughs> Little things like that. It's like, why are you parking in front of my house? Park in front of your house. You know, like that stupid things like that. Or, um, you know, I, I, I don't go on Twitter nearly as much anymore because I, I get caught up in the, yeah. in the, you know, the, the, the rage and, you know, I, things like that, things, things I can't control. I don't like worrying about things I can't control. And um, I've been constantly trying to work on, just focusing on the things I can control. I mean, it's been an ongoing battle and, you know, over the years I've been getting a little better, but every once in a while you get sucked into things you really yeah, can't control, right? So I struggle with obsessive compulsive disorder. And um, so, yeah, like just, yeah, crippling worry about, you know, insanely out of proportion things and things that will 99.99% never happen or just worrying about yeah like having offended someone or oh yeah and so um basically december i I essentially i just had a breakdown and i just wasn't like i got into a situation at work that i just couldn't get myself out of and i just had to i just couldn't (laughs) just didn't know what what to do so i i had to stop working for a while so i i I took a break and i've been doing a podcast and i wrote this series and sort of did therapy and tried medication things now i've been retraining to try and teach english as a foreign language so um oh good so i don't know why i'm telling you this but yeah no no it's good i i i absolutely understand it one of the reasons i I've been moving away from, from uh, acting and is, is the anxiety. So I, I won't get into, I, I understand where you come from. I, I, uh, a few, few years back, I thought, I thought I was having a heart attack and make a long story short. It ended up, it was a panic attack and, and, and I was in denial about that for a long time and went in for multiple tests and, yeah. uh, you know, finally, you know, I was convinced it's like, okay, it's, in, it's, it's incredible how much power our brain has over yeah. us. Uh, and so, and one of the triggers is this, you know, I, I stopped, I, I, I had to step away from my auditioning and, and, and as, as a Canadian actor, that's based essentially, you know, saying, well, I'm not going to work anymore because nobody's giving you offers. Right. Um, because I just, the anxiety would just, debilitate me going for auditions or i found around every day around 4 35 i would just i would just get so tense and shake and uh and it's because that's when my my agent would normally call if i had an audition for the yeah. next day 
And so I just had to stop it. I just had, I just had to get, get, and, and I've been happier ever since, like it's been great, but I'm not getting a bunch of work. Right. <laughs> but I felt I've been lucky because corner gas has, has, has paid the bills. That must've been but, a huge, that starting up again must've been a huge relief you know yeah on a, on a number of on a number of friends once i'm i'm so comfortable with everything about corner gas with with you know the people i work with with the show with the character i love playing hank like you know i play i'll play hank as long as they'll let me i absolutely love it um it's nice to have a paycheck you know doing something you really like it's comfortable it's it's nice and you know it's not i'm not gonna say it's easy it's work you gotta yeah, put yeah. the you gotta put work into it but but it, when you like doing it, you don't mind doing the work. You know, it's kind of cliche to say that, but it's true. Thank you so much for doing oh, this. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, it was really nice to chat with you. Yeah, it was nice. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for reaching out. Oh, you're welcome. Yeah, you you, you listen to it, and I'm not going to be offended if it never, never sees the light of day. And that's our show. Thanks as always to our guests whose opinions are our own. Special thanks also this week to Ben Pester. I'll be back in two weeks. It's another big one. Sleep well. Dream carefully.